Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Santa Barbara, California, in captivity as everyone else. Before I get started, I want to remind you that there is a website called wealthformula.com that you should visit if you'd like to get some of the resources available there for free because the podcast is really only part of the fun. There's also a course called The Roadmap to Real Wealth, which you can uh, potentially get involved with and become part of the Wealth Formula Network community. Uh, you can go to, uh, you can find that at wealthformula.com or also uh, directly at wealthformularoadmap.com. Uh, I also would like to suggest that you strongly consider joining that during this time off because it's a good time, uh, you know, if you've got a little extra time to actually buttress your financial knowledge now and get involved with uh, this community. We do these biweekly Zoom calls, um, you know, they're video calls, and we have this Facebook groups, and we have lots of really good discussions going on there. Again, check that out. Um, if you go to wealthformularoadmap.com, you can do that. Now, as for today, actually, uh, you know, the podcast, this is one of uh, of two. It, it ran long, and I thought it'd be good to cut them up into two. And we're releasing them at the same time, but it'll be easier to digest for your commutes or whatever. But, you know, the thing is, we live in a very, very strange, strange time uh, in that even public health issues are being politicized. You know, there are wingnuts on the right. All right, and there's wingnuts on the left. The wingnuts on the right want to downplay a virus that has already taken the lives of more than, you know, more people than died in the Vietnam War. The wingnuts on the left want to demonize anyone who even suggests an alternative approach to dealing with the pandemic outside of staying home in perpetuity. You know, they want us just to completely ignore the pain, suffering, death that comes not from necessarily from the virus, but from poverty and from a financial depression, which is very, very well documented. All you have to go back is look at the 30s to see how, how that turns out. So the polarity of thought uh, during this Plaque Swan event, you know, unfortunately is the product of politicized news on both sides. And that's a problem for us all, unfortunately. And as a physician... And really what I consider at least an overall rational guy who doesn't get caught up in, you know, the tribalism of, you know, modern day politics, 
this kind of partisanship, uh, you know, is is downright maddening. And and that said, it's not surprising, right, from where we've actually come to the point that we've come to. You know, the funny thing is, and I don't know about you, but here's the thing: is like when I was a kid, I'm 46 years old, and I was a kid, even down through before the internet came up. It seemed like there was really only one set of facts, right? And then you could base an opinion on them. You could base an opinion and you could have rational, you know, disagreements about them. But the problem now is that there is this idea that there are alternative facts and that has made the world a very, very confusing place to navigate. That said, the idea that there are alternative sets of facts in science, in fact, is what they call these days fake news. You see, in science, we follow the studies. Sometimes the studies, you know, they'll show a disparity, and there may be a reason for that. But over time, if we do the studies rigorously, we do get to the bottom of things. But, you know, this example of politicization of science and studies, I mean, all you have to do is look at this whole issue with hydrochloroquine. Uh, so Donald Trump has been talking it up, I think, um, you know, to a certain degree, inappropriately for a non-medical professional, uh, like it's, you know, a vitamin with no downside. And, and of course, that's not true. There's some potentially severe side effects of the drug that have actually killed people in the past few weeks. And on the other hand, in order to prove Trump wrong at every turn, the liberal news media makes hydrochloroquine sound like an asinine treatment in any shape, way, or form for COVID-19, which the evidence might actually suggest otherwise. What the evidence does suggest is that there might be a role, might be a role for hydrochloroquine in the treatment of this illness, but it may be nuanced. It may be at certain phases of the disease, and it may not be helpful. It could make it worse at different phases in the disease. So bottom line is that there is a polarity, a politicization, a right or wrong, black or white, on an issue that is inherently nuanced. And that's the problem, is that most things in life are nuanced. Now, this is just one example of complex issues that are being dealt with in sort of these ridiculous soundbite ways in the press. It's not helpful for anyone who really wants to understand what's really going on out there. So I took it upon myself to try to get together a podcast interview with uh, people who actually know what they're talking about. So I've asked three guys to come on the show this week who happen to be fellow physicians like me, and they're also investors, and they have a lot of money in these markets, and they've had time to think about it. Uh, And this week, we're going to focus on the disease itself mostly. Um, So when we come back, uh, you're going to hear our thoughts on what this whole COVID-19 thing is and, you know, why it's as bad as it is or if it's not as bad as we think it is. You know, some of the potential treatments out there, you know, realities versus fiction. You're not going to want to miss this. So hang on. We'll be right back. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, 
and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to wealthformulabanking.com. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, today on Wealth Formula Podcast, this is a very interesting, different sort of format we got here. And, uh, you know, I, I think you'll find this useful. Uh, we have, uh, I have with uh, me today, I have three uh, of our listeners who also happen to be uh, members of Wealth Formula Network, and they're also uh, active members in uh, Investor Club. And they're, uh, like I said, they're physicians, all of them. And so we've got uh, Ian Kurth, who's been on before. Ian is a neuroradiologist in Wisconsin. And we have Prash Mehta, who's a, a GI, gastroenterologist doctor in San Antonio. And then John Foley, who's a neurologist uh, who has a lot of uh, experience, actually, in, uh, uh, in immunology and things like that, too. And he's based in Utah. Guys, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, joining us. Thank Thanks you. for having us, Bob. Um, I want to I just start out real quick and um, I, just for a little perspective. This is kind of uh, for each one of you, maybe just getting to know kind of like, you know, what's your specialty? We already talked about that, but maybe kind of like, you know, what's going on with your work right now, how you're handling it. And then, you know, also, you know, talk about uh, what you do outside of medicine in terms of, you know, your your investments and stuff like that. You know, just just a high level perspective so people know who who's actually talking. Why don't we start with you, John? Sure. Uh, so, Buck, I'm a uh, uh, practicing uh, neurologist specializing in uh, clinical neuroimmunology, uh, which primarily involves taking care of uh, patients with multiple sclerosis and related disorders. Uh, I've had a significant interest, particularly in uh, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, due to the fact we have a lot of uh, immunocompromised uh, patients, primarily uh, because of the medications mm -hmm. that we're using in multiple sclerosis. Um, so I've been following it uh, pretty closely. Uh, our practice right now is uh, following the guidelines of the state of Utah. Uh, so we are primarily doing telemedicine uh, for follow-up patients. Um, we still do uh, some infusions and uh, um, emergent uh, cases where we'll see the patients uh, directly. Um, as far as investments go, I'm uh, not real big on the general stock market. Uh, I have a lot of uh, investments in uh, real estate and some um, some backup investments in uh, precious metals in case the world falls apart, sure. which it's uh, proceeding to do. 
So I thought I well saw around. some zombies in the backyard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they came for me first because I was the one making fun of them. <laughs> um, uh, Presh, how about you? Yeah, thanks, Buck. Uh, my name is Paresh Mehta. I'm a uh, practicing gastroenterologist down in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, there's about 25 of us in the group. And, and what does a gastroenterologist do? Well, we deal with all types of things such as acid reflux, uh, ulcers, um, Crohn's disease, uh, colon cancer prevention, and, and lots of other things in between. Um, we also recently joined one of the largest groups in the country with uh, now a total of 350 GI docs. Uh, that's sort of allowed us to grow and, and take into account some of the changes in medicine um, in regards to payers and, and other hospital systems. Um, our group currently, uh, you know, we're made up of surgical centers and outpatient office visits, um, just like Utah and, and other states. Uh, most of our visits now have been sort of pushed to telehealth, which is a video platform to kind of chat like this uh, online in order to diagnose and, and get things done for patients. Um, our surgical centers have been closed over the last four weeks, which means all of the procedures such as endoscopies, which are cameras going down, and colonoscopies have been shut down. Uh, but just recently, the governor of Texas is going to allow us to open back up. So we're slowly trying to figure out how to do that. Got it. And you're also a, a guy who's, uh, you know, certainly got exposure to, you know, multiple real estate uh, offerings. And uh, I know you do a lot of other things. Uh, and Ian, uh, you've been on before, but if you want to give us a, a, a brief uh, reintroduction to uh, Ian Kurth, that'd be great. Sure. Thank you. So yeah, I was, um, I gave my earlier introduction, but basically I'm a married father of four. Um, I did my academic training at a variety of institutions, uh, including undergrad at University of Michigan, medical school, Michigan State, and I did a diagnostic radiology residency and neuroradiology fellowship at Duke. Um, for the past 13 years, I've been in private practice uh, with the same group here in northern Wisconsin. Um, and recently, because of the current circumstances, I've dusted off my old clinical reference books and have been forcing myself to explore some some more clinical topics uh, in an effort to to remain informed and in an effort to yeah. sort of be a resource to family and friends and community and so forth. Uh, so, uh, anything I say during this should be you know listened to through the lens that I'm a radiologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, but um, you know, listen, uh, and and Ian, if you go by the way, if you go back and. Uh, uh, the shows previously, you get the whole story in it. It's really interesting. In many ways, I've called him the wealth formula uh, poster child uh, because of he's, you know, a quintessential high paid professional who's really created, you know, this very elaborate uh, investing. I guess it's an invest. You would call it investing business, right? I mean, he, he is looking at deals all the time and investing and deploying capital and thinking about this stuff. So I would encourage you to listen to that as well. Guys, um, obviously, um, you know, the last, uh, I'll just remind everybody that I that I actually am a physician, although I haven't practiced now for about four years. So so this is for, for, uh, for physicians who are going to talk about the current situation. And the reason I wanted to do this is because, frankly, there's so much BS out there. There's a lot of information um, about this virus, you know, we call COVID-19. Uh, there's a lot of information on potential therapies, vaccines. Unfortunately, we live in a world where there are often more than one set of facts, which makes it really, really difficult for people to understand what the truth or what, you know, uh, what's not true. So 
John, let, let's, let's start with you. Um, right now, uh, what is going on with the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, and maybe you can kind of give us a, a little bit of a, an idea from, you know, what you're seeing in terms of, you know, the curves and also, uh, you know, true advances or non-advances in, in therapy. Well, let me take uh, just a few minutes, uh, Buck, and I, I'm going to try and stay on the light side for um, numeric data and such, but um, there's a few things that we have to do to just sort of level set the discussion, I think. W one is what what is the virus that we're dealing with? Um, so this has an official name of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, it has about 80% of what they call homology or similarity to the original SARS virus, which had a much higher mortality rate, probably around uh, 10%. We call that classic uh, SARS. Um, and uh, this family of viruses, the coronaviruses, uh, for the most part, we know them uh, through the common cold. There's probably at least four strains of uh, coronavirus that produce the common cold. Um, they're large envelope, single-stranded RNA uh, viruses. Um, this thing is extremely contagious. Uh, we use uh, a, a, a scale for infectivity uh, called the r naught scale. Um, and uh, if you take a virus like measles, which is probably has about an r naught of 11 or 12, uh, which means that uh, for one person infected, maybe 11 or 12 uh, people will actually uh, come down uh, with the virus from that one contact. Um, this uh, might be as high as six. I mean, official estimates have put it around three, but that's primarily using the number of known cases. Um, and so a known case is, is a case that has been uh, shown to be positive by a technique um, called uh, polymerase chain reaction. Uh, in this case, reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction. Uh, so if you look at those numbers worldwide, we're about 2.6 million um, with a mortality of about 183,000 and a case fatality rate of about 7%. Now, the, the problem with that case fatality rate is Again, it's only measuring those people uh, that actually um, tested positive by, by this basic test, the PCR, which amplifies little pieces of the virus. Um, there, it's, it's looking more and more like there's a very large percentage of the population uh, who actually have been exposed to the virus. Their innate immune system has handled it at the level of the nasopharynx and they've produced antibodies, um, and long-term antibodies are called IgG antibodies, uh, and that, that rate is really unknown, but probably is at least 10 times the number of uh, diagnosed cases, which would put our fatality rates, if you look at, that's called the infection fatality rate, that would drop that dramatically, probably uh, under 1%. Uh, to give you an example, uh, flu mortalities are generally around 0.1%. Um, 
So as far as where we're at on the curve, um, it, it looks like the U.S. is coming close to peaking, but, but the U.S. is a very large country. It's got a lot of variability. There are a number of states that really aren't anywhere near peaking. For instance, in Utah, we might not peak until July, even June or July. Um, so the, um, the virus, it, it, it's very interesting as well, and I'm sure we'll get to talking a little bit more uh, about um, about uh, country variability and lockdown and, and how tight the lockdown is to change the numbers. But anyway, that's that's a little basic yeah. uh, overview before we get into the specifics. Yeah, you know, and, and one of the things, a couple of things you pointed out I think are really important um, to just for people to know. Um, this is... Uh, this is different uh, in that fr- from the first SARS virus. People might remember the first SARS virus, and it, it was somebody else's problem, right? It was in China. It was never something that you know we saw in this country. And the reason for that was that the first SARS virus was so damn deadly, right? And it also wasn't something that you had so many asymptomatic uh, carriers with. So what the uh, the paradox of this virus is that it's it's, uh, you know, not like it has a brain, but it's smarter. It's a smarter virus. It doesn't kill as much. It infects a lot more and it kills, uh, you know, it kills less, but the pure volume of people who are getting infected is what's creating the, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers game that's resulting in all these deaths. So that's what's making it so challenging. Paresh uh, and uh, Ian, either one of you have anything to add with sort of the basic uh, outline of that? Yeah, I would, I would just jump in and say if we, we come out of the medical knowledge and just thinking about the lif- listeners of, of Wealth Formula, you know, my, my thoughts are the current status is evolving and still progressing. I mean, if you really look at what we know today, it's it's the evidence suggests that, you know, some areas appear to be peaking, but around the U.S. we're still seeing increasing in areas, really the ones that may have been a little bit less stringent with the social distancing. Um, you know, one of the key issues we have, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, is is what's been effective in other areas has been able to test and also then quarantine and social distance. Since we haven't had that ability here in the U S that's why we forced to the whole, everybody socially distance and get away from each other. Um, And you can see some of the issues that's causing. So yeah, my my thoughts are right now it's still evolving and we're learning a lot more about exactly where it's going to land. And then I think some new information is coming out also on what it's going to look like later this year uh, when the flu peaks again. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump on that and just say that, you know, I will put this out there and say I humbly recognize, we humbly recognize that today is April 23rd, 2020, and anything that we say today in regard to the current knowledge of, of science and, and the situation could be proven ridiculously false in the future. Yeah. And, and we're all sort of navigating this uh, uh, in the best way that we can with the best data that we have access to um, and trying to convey that that data um, to the population, frankly, we're trying to translate that data. And then, and that's what one of the challenges I've found myself faced with recently um, is to do what we do every day as practicing physician. It's, it's to be a translator for, for people it's to take complex topics and themes and convey them in stories or analogies that make them, you know, relatable and understandable and, and, and frankly actionable. So kind of further upon that in it, it, one of the biggest themes that I'm, I find myself sort of trying to convey to, to people um, is that, you know, in my opinion, that we're not going 
back to how it was yep. anytime soon. Yeah. Okay. People, people yearn for that and they really, really just want to have it how it was in, in February when nobody knew about this, but it, it, that's just not a reality. And, um, you know, I've heard this description that what people want it to be is a Corona blizzard. It's this big, you know, bad thing. Everybody goes into their homes, lets it pass. And then we come all come outside and it's sunny and, and, and we can go about our day, but that's actually probably the wrong approach. And, and it should be, you know, basically we're all in all likelihood facing kind of a Corona winter. It's going to be a long protracted process where we're just going to, um, you know, attempt to buy ourselves time with this isolation and then um, allow the scientific method to, you know, get us ahead on various therapies and knowledge about the, uh, about the virus and, and potentially a vaccine soon. So, yeah, I saw, you know, I saw a study I know, recently, I think it was yesterday I saw a study about, um, about how many people, if, if all of the quarantine stuff was taken off today, how many people would actually go on a plane, you know, and how many people would actually feel comfortable going to like a football game? And the numbers were staggering, right? It was like 80% in every category from these major things were no. And so we'll get into this later, but there's a, an enormous uh, economic consequence uh, mm-hmm. to this that, that we haven't even gotten close to yet. Um, John, I want to go with uh, go to you uh, again, because I know you've been following um, some of the studies we've been talking about that. Uh, talking about them a little bit, and even on Wealth Formula Network, you know, until a month ago, hydrochloroquine or uh, or chloroquine or uh, plaquenil, all these are the sort of the same uh, drug uh, in one way or another. They're 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 old malarial drugs, and and they were kind of you know they've been around for fifty years. Uh, maybe uh, plaquenil is used to treat lupus now, um, and and you know it actually showed some benefits uh, in some studies, particularly out of of France, uh, for COVID-19 in terms of at least decreasing death, maybe decreasing the amount of time to clear the virus, et cetera. And then uh, I think based on that, I think that became a a Trump um, mantra, um, you know, to, to hit uh, Plaquenil and, you know, the, the Z-Pak, the azithromycin, et cetera. But then we've had mixed studies. We've had, you know, really confusing stuff out there, and some studies actually showing increases in uh, or in mortality in patients that were given uh, Plaquenil. Uh, John, can you give us, uh, you know, specifically and more generally about what's what do we really know about the hydrochloroquine and and uh, and ZPAC without? without the political sauce on it. And also, um, you know, if there are any other drugs that really are showing some promise. Sure. So uh, this really is a way, uh, Buck, that I'm just amazing how science can get interpreted in ways that really uh, can be extremely detrimental. I, I think to understand hydroxychloroquine, you have to understand a couple of other things. Uh, one is its relationship to zinc and what zinc does, and also where in the disease process you really place the drug. Mm-hmm. Um, so hydroxychloroquine. So well, let's just talk about the progression of the disease. In my mind, it, it kind of boils down into three stages. Um, in the in first week, generally you become symptomatic at right around the five to six day point. That can be out to 14 days after exposure, especially in older people, seems to take longer 
for the virus to build up. But but essentially, uh, and you're and pre-symptomatic people can be infectious for probably at least a couple of days, which further complicates. We'll we'll be talking later about social distancing and and uh, looking actually at contact tracing and such. But but essentially, you have a first week in which viral replication is going crazy. Your body's throwing a little bit of nonspecific IgM antibodies added in that first week, but it, it doesn't really work that well. By day 10, you pretty much have started to build IgG antibodies um, to, uh, to epitopes or locations inside the virus that can be attached by uh, antibody. Uh, so, so that viral uh, increase in load really is occurring in that first week, week and a half. Once you move into the second week, you either stabilize, the IgG works reasonably well, your viral loads start to decline, and you, you can still be very sick for a number of days, but, but you don't start entering uh, the respiratory distress stages where you drop your saturations and you start to be real tachypnic where you, you're taking a lot of breaths. Um, that's the stage where you need to be probably in the hospital watched very carefully because you can go move to ARDS and, and respiratory support very, very quickly within less than a day. Uh, and then there's that third stage, which is really characterized by cytokine storm, which is a bunch of proteins in your body, uh, especially one protein, um, uh, interleukin-6, which kind of goes crazy and reacts dramatically to virus being in your lower lungs. So I, I, I really feel that hydroxychloroquine doesn't do much in those later stages. Right. Hydroxychloroquine is really a drug you want to use day one through five, day one through seven, maybe. And most of the studies have concentrated on hospitalized uh, patients. So hydroxychloroquine is less toxic than chloroquine. Um, what it seems to do is it increases the pH. And so it interferes with things like viral fusion to the cell and the membranes. Um, most antivirals work best given very early. Uh, and the other thing that hydroxychloroquine does is it helps transport, it's called an ionos, uh, ionophore, it helps transport zinc uh, from the circulation into the cell, and zinc really has a toxic effect on, on uh, viruses. Most of the studies to date have been pretty late, have not necessarily included zinc or zinc levels. We know that people most at risk for this disease are the elderly and diabetics and obese. They tend to be zinc deficient. Um, there have been a few small studies, and there have been a number of uh, just empiric uh, sort of uh, announcements of what clinical practice has yielded. Um, the French study you alluded to, Buck, um, showed, uh, showed significant reduction in progression to the more severe stages. Um, there was an early, actually, this was, I uh, had a control group, the Chen study in Wuhan, 31 patients in each group, uh, and they found that uh, Fever, cough, and pneumonia improved in 81% of the uh, of the treated group, uh, and these people were treated uh, with 200 uh, milligrams BID of hydroxychloroquine for five days, no zinc added. Um, not much in the way of studies on azithromycin. 
many people are using um, uh, hydroxychloroquine in addition to azithromycin. Um, right now, uh, because of the potential uh, risk of um, adding multiple uh, QT prolongers, that's the uh, heart interval that's been discussed quite a bit. Um, I'm not sure I would use azithro in combination, but I sure would use hydroxychloroquine and zinc early on. Yeah. Um, so a few other little data. Just, da oh, just, sorry, to, go ahead, Bob. just to interrupt you, I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, for the non-physicians, basically, I think what John is is getting at is that this, there's studies out there and they're conflicting and they're confusing. And part of it simply could be that we, you know, we tend to look at a, a drugs in, in a uh, in a vacuum, right? This works, this doesn't work. But what John is saying is, hey, this disease has different phases to it, you know, and you have one phase that's sort of the beginning and then the middle and then the end. And um, the studies that, if I'm if I'm hearing you right, John, the the studies that are they're all anecdotal. They're not double, you know, the 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 gold standard type of of, of testing that we want to do. But the studies out of France that were showing some promise, they were showing that uh, you know if you used it early on in disease, I mean, this thing seemed to you know really potentially have some benefit. And the stuff where you saw mortality in other words people dying more because of it actually may have been because in in people who were already in a later stage of disease is that is that what you're saying yeah there was one study that just came out that really got in the news and was just extremely irritating this is the VA study with 368 vets retrospectively and basically uh, they, th there was a selection bias where they gave hydroxychloroquine. They kind of threw the kitchen sink at these patients who were on ventilators and, and in the process of dying. And then they came up and said that, yeah, more people on hydroxychloroquine died. And that got in the mainstream news and was amplified without giving the details about the fact that they gave hydroxychloroquine to people that were worse. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's this kind of thing and it was at a very late stage. It was basically in that, what I would call phase three of um, disease yeah. progression. And you wouldn't expect hydroxychloroquine to work. It's the, the thing that kills you is primarily sort of a, um, a, co a coagulation prop problem in conjunction with an ARDS. Yeah. So it's a, uh, it's your own immune system that your that, immune system yeah, right. that gives amounts of big reaction and it's ultimately what kills you. And, and what you're trying to do is prevent that stage, right? Correct. So Paresh and uh, Ian, um, jump in here. Any additional thoughts on what John, John is uh, talking about or Maybe just some specific thoughts on your own feeling about, you know, hydrochloroquine at this point. Uh, you know, what, yeah, what I hate, I got to tell you one thing, what I hate seeing is seeing this thing getting politicized. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, Trump probably shouldn't be, uh, he shouldn't be, you know, acting like the, you know, the public health director of the United States. He, he really shouldn't be doing that. But on the other hand, the problem is that there's so much partisan stuff about this, that there's a real potential that, you know, this drug actually could be a benefit to people. And instead of looking at it objectively, it has become a partisan issue, which is just insane. Um, uh, yeah. So what do you, what do you think, Prashian? 
Yeah, I'll just jump in and say, you know, John summarized that very nicely. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think there is, there's definitely seems to be some potential benefit in the early stages of using hydroxychloroquine or, or some derivative of that. Um, you know, a good analogy is, is in the real estate world, as we all know, in, with alternative assets, everybody says, put a team together, let's figure it out and put the best people on the team. Um, if you look at what came out of the NIH, I think uh, in the last 24 hours is they did exactly that and said, hey, is there a benefit between hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in people who have COVID-19 infection? That included 50, 50 different individuals, including doctors, pharmacists, the yeah. CDC, FDA. And basically, they just came out and said at the end of it, that based on what they know today, at least, that um, they would not recommend doing that. They actually say that, you know, the, the quote is, COVID, they would not recommend using this with COVID-19 patients until more definitive clinical trials are needed to really get the optimal outcome. So I think, I think that says enough. Now, is that enough to say that this will never be used or, or that we may not use it eventually, maybe for early stages? No, but I do think it's helpful to have that full team of experts together and, and give us those results. How about you, Ian? Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate those comments. And uh, these two colleagues here joining me are, you know, way more <laughs> involved in, in the nuances of this than, than I am. And, and I appreciate the, the context that they offer. I mean, my, my approach to this tends to be sort of um, higher level. Um, I'm certainly not a virologist, epidemiologist. I know enough to be dangerous. And I know the, sort of the processes that um, need to occur for, um, drugs to get to market for therapies to be effective for for the uh, standards that we need to abide by to to keep our population safe and to, and to treat them and um, in my opinion you know repurposing existing therapies um, is probably the fastest way to sort of manipulate the curve right now and to buy ourselves time to to get additional information about how this is evolving and to buy ourselves time to you know redirect and repurpose manufacturing to get you know. Uh, protective um, personal protective gear to our frontliners and so forth. So um, and I know that there's other therapies that are looking to be repurposed. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of talk about antibody therapy, which seems to be promising, but that's also challenged by time and resource intensive processes. And, you know, there's a number of different drugs that are sort of being analyzed by artificial intelligence to further, um, you know, for the prospects of them being fruitful, but ultimately it's, it's, it's going to take some time, right? Yeah. It's going to take some time for these to evolve. And I place my trust in the institutions that are, um, that are performing that kind of research. And, um, and I know, and I, I, I also like to tell people this, that there's been really no point in recent history um, where the entire world's scientific community is pulling the sled in the same direction. Like there's some smart people working on this. Everybody's kind of working on this. And ultimately we're going to, we're going to figure something out that's going to um, prove. Yeah. Yeah. It'll take some time. Well, I think, can I just make a quick comment? Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, you know, one thing that is a little frustrating is for um, experts and I, you know, I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist either, but to say there's no data that anything really makes a difference and that uh, we need to wait for phase three clinical trials. Well, those will occur. They'll be uh, available probably in six months, but it also is, I mean, those people in New York are in the trenches. 
there's at one point thousands of people dying every day and it is the art of medicine and I, I guess, and I'd like to get uh, an opinion from uh, all, all my colleagues on the show, whether they would use hydroxychloroquine if they developed yeah. a fever to 101, uh, shortness of breath yeah. and cough. Yeah, I think and that's, when they would do that. That's a but, great question. Yeah. I, I, I think we have to get that question answered. But uh, one thing is, um, y- you know, there is a point where you look and you just say, okay, clinically, what's the risk benefit ratio of intervening? We, we give hydroxychloroquine to thousands of people going on trips as an anti-malarial. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and to me, the risk benefit equation of doing this is well within the bounds that I would be comfortable with. I would just, uh, I would just echo something there. And I think that what, um, from what I've seen from the literature, and I haven't dove, dove as deep as John, but I've, I've been trying to, to read the more significant studies. But for me, anecdotally, and again, this is not medical advice at all. Um, and uh, just because, you know, when I think about, um, you know, the, the studies that most reflect somebody who's in early disease um, and who, you know, doesn't have an underlying heart problem, which, you know, I don't think I do. Uh, if I, if I had a strong suspicion of, you know, that I, that I was infected, I would probably opt to, to take the, uh, the Plaquenil hydrochloroquine. Um, and, and again, it's because, uh, I don't think the data is clear, but I think that, you know, the French studies out there are, they're not perfect, but there, there's some, there's better than, you know, a little bit of evidence there. I think, um. So I would do it. I mean, Parash, I'm guessing you're a no on that one. <laughs> no, no, it's not a zero sum game at all. Yeah. And you know, um, if 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 the evidence was there and suggestive that um, I had exposure or um, it seemed like it was higher than uh, higher than average chance that I, I contracted the COVID nineteen infection, uh, definitely would be on my list. I'm, I'm definitely not a hard no. Yeah. Um, we run into this issue all the time in medicine, and, and this is just one that happens to get international spotlight, rightfully so, is, is what do you do boots on the ground, and what do you do with what a clinical trial says? Yeah. And sometimes it's a very difficult decision. How about you, Ian? Would you do it? I think it's situational dependent, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have a strong opinion yet. Um, um, I, I'm probably, I would probably lean towards considering it, um, based on what we see and based on, and this is just coming from uh, where I am health wise, you know, I, mm-hmm. I don't have a known heart problem. I'm fairly healthy and I would like to, um, you know, be in the cohort that survives this. And that seems to be a low risk way to maybe add an incremental right. benefit. Right. There is one little other data point, but uh, Costa Rica has 681 cases. So, so you heard, you know, we're net, we're internationally, around uh, five to seven percent on our case fatality rate, which remember is only the the uh, clearly diagnosed cases. Uh, Costa Rica started using this uh, hydroxychloroquine regimen very early in their curve. And um, their case fatality rate, not infection fatality rate, is still below one percent. They've had six deaths doing that. So you know kind of indirect population data, uh, but still interesting. One one other question I have for any of you is obviously you know Plaquenil is used and for, for patients with lupus. So are we seeing people with lupus dying? 
Do we know? I mean, if if peop, if there's a lower incidence of infection, I mean, obviously lupus is not something that you probably can get a huge amount of data in a short period of time. But has anybody seen heard about that? Jumping right afterwards, but you know, the lupus spectrum is wide, and and the degree of of patients that are using frontline or or mild to moderate level treatment like hydroxychloroquine versus some of the other patients who are using more significant immunosuppressants. Um, it's kind of hard to tell. I have yeah. not seen anything, but I, I have not been on the outlook look for it either. Got it. John? I, I just have an anecdotal report of one patient uh, who was on 200 milligrams of plaquenil a day for discoid lupus. Uh, she was hospitalized with worsening uh, COVID-2. Uh, uh, we in discussion, talked to her hospitalist, increased her dose from 200 to 600 and added azithromycin. And the next day she started to uh, reverse her oxygen needs and uh, drop from four liters uh, down to one in about 24 hours. But, you know, again, a single anecdotal yeah, case. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure what to make of that. How about other, is there any other drugs that I think, uh, you know, just briefly, I mean, obviously we can, uh, we've got some other things I want to talk about, but any other really promising drugs here that that, that anybody knows about? Um, yeah, I, I think the IL-6 story is very interesting, Buck. So that's interleukin-6. It's probably the lead cytokine or little tiny protein that gets uh, excited in cytokine storm. There's two drugs undergoing trial right now, uh, tocilizumab and um, uh, uh, cerulean Cerulimab, um, Capzara, uh, and uh, they're both very interesting. There's a German study that showed that if your IL-6 level got higher than 80 picograms per ml, um, you were 22 times more likely to need a ventilator. So, you know, that's something that all the critical care docs are following now in the ICU, uh, and these two drugs are potent inhibitors of IL-6. So we have a little bit of preliminary data that suggests uh, that it works in more severe cases. Um, but we, you know, big studies are, the, the, this drug, these drugs really need these major phase three trials. And, uh, and they're ongoing. They started in the beginning of April. Um, the only other uh, drug that I would want to say something about is remdesivir. Um, this morning, they accidentally released the results of their early Chinese study, uh, which looks like it didn't help all that much. It, it is a drug that vi- binds to viral RNA polymerase. That's, that's the so, Ebola drug that was designed Yeah, the Ebola. Ebola drug that didn't mm-hmm. work, but worked yeah. uh, fairly well in SARS and, and MERS. So, um, so I don't know. We'll have to wait and see what the American... Uh, studies on that look like. But again, it's a drug that mainly impacts the virus. And if you're talking about late, late stage people, you know, it, it's, it's a good question whether uh, impacting the virus is going to matter at that point. So that's it for uh, part one of uh, this uh, series on uh, COVID-19 with uh, these uh, three doctors, me making number four, I hope you enjoyed that. Now, next episode, what we're going to do is we're going to change our focus a little bit. We're going to focus going from the disease and potential treatments to the ideas behind vaccines. What some of the limitations are there? And then finally, 
of course, uh, we are going to talk about some of the economic impact of uh, the virus. Um, And so don't miss that. That's it for this episode uh, of Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.